Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Let's uh, go back. We're in verse 8. The elder needs to be hospitable. And the whole idea of hospitable there is that he needs to be friendly. Now, in those days, how were they friendly? How are you friendly in those days? You invite people in your house to stay over. And that, that was, a, that was a, a, a culturally acceptable, almost, duty. Um, you want to see a little bit of that, go back to Genesis. Remember when Abraham had the angels and Christ show up? He invited them in. Um, when Lot had the two angels show up, he invited them in. Um, hospitality is a mark of a believer, one who loves other people. If you don't love other people, how do you lead them to Christ? Kind of tough, isn't it? You know, and I, yeah, when I was growing up in the Baptist church, you don't want to hang around unbelievers. They might corrupt you. Well, you know, Christ hung around a lot of unbelievers. You know, in fact, everybody he hung around with was an unbeliever. And yet he did it to reach them. So an elder should be someone who's friendly, who's hospitable, a lover of what is good. What do you mean by that? Yeah, things that are worthwhile, wholesome, good. Someone who wants to be around and see good things. Now, let's stop and think about that. Do you think that applies to television? Generally. Yeah, generally, if you're a pastor of a church and you're filling your mind with the garbage of TV. Now, Star Trek's okay to watch here, so there are a few approved shows. Star Trek being one of those. But here's the whole point. Someone who loves good things. What does it say in Philippians 4.8? Think on what? Honest, good report, pure. Yeah. Because if you're, if you're focused on that which is bad, you become bitter, become distorted, become negative. A lover of good things. Sober-minded. What's that idea? Cool-headed. Um, some say serious. What does it mean to be serious? You mean you go around with a frown all your time and every time somebody laughs, they say, oh, you're not a buffoon, all right? Um, there are some preachers that almost make themselves out to be buffoons. And that, that's not what it's talking about. It doesn't mean as a pastor you can't laugh at a good joke and have a good time and pray pra practical jokes. I mean, good night. I see what David Walls did to me sometimes. I mean, you know, I mean, I almost can't even talk about it. It's so painful, you know. It's all the tricks that were played. But the whole point is, there. you know, it's like to putt for a birdie and have a towel fall on your ball halfway between... And him, oh, dropped my towel, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, man, he did that. All, he, he'd do that all. You'd be putting for a birdie, and, and all of a sudden this towel come flying over your head, and he could make it land right on your golf ball as it's rolling along the green, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but it doesn't mean you can't have fun, and as Christians we should have fun, but it means there... When it's time to be serious, you're serious. There's a seriousness about your life. You're dealing with things of eternal importance. And it's not... It, things, there, there's things that you just don't joke about. Because they're serious. <clears throat> right. Right. Be serious. And then it says here, just. Just. What's just? Fair. Fair. And holy, of course, we know what holy means, right? Separate. It means their character. It goes, goes to character. And it says here, self-control. 
What does it mean to be self-controlled? In control of yourself. All right? You're not out of control. You're in control. Um, you're disciplined. Um, if you can't manage your time, can you be a pastor? No, because what's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things as believers, we need to, we need to get out of the way, out of the mode of living in a crisis all the time. And part of living in a crisis is that you don't plan. You're not disciplined. You don't watch your time. Financially, you can be undisciplined and blow money and, and be in debt. Um, Time-wise, you can dilly-dally around and not get anything done. And when there's nobody there watching you punch the clock and keeping track of what you're doing, it's easy to slough off, isn't it? It's easy to sit in your office and play solitaire on the computer all day long and not study and not spend time in the Word. You want someone who's self-controlled. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. What does it mean to hold fast? Hang on to it. You want someone who's not, who, who holds on to the word of God and doesn't let go of it. Now again, we're talking about here what? The core of our belief. We're not talking about peripheral issues. We're talking about the core, the the essentials of the gospel. He's going to hold fast on to that because it is something to not get dropped or lost. Hold on to it. As he has been taught. The implication there is that he's learned this from someone. There's a seriousness about it. We have God's truth. We want to make sure we don't distort it, and we don't, by neglect, allow it to be lost. A man needs to hold it fast, that he may be able by sound, there's that word sound again, kind of doctrine, sound doctrine. What does sound doctrine produce? Healthy bodies, godly character, righteous living, holy people, healthy and wholesome. Like pizza. Actually, to say pizza is usually it's pretty good for you, really. I take consolation in that. <clears throat> By sound doctrine to do what? To exhort and convict those who contradict. What's common about the exhort and convict? What group is that to? The contradictors, right? Who's the ones who contradict? Well, the ones who do not believe or, do, or who want to argue. And how do you do it? To exhort. What's exhort? Encourage. Yeah, encourage, strengthen, admonish those who contradict. And to convict, what is that? I, what's the idea of convict? Convince. Convince them of the truth. Okay? This goes back to the core of what the preacher, the elder, is to do. This is the only non-character quality, right? Everything to this point has been character. And then it says he needs to hold fast the form of sound doctrine. What, what does that imply? Is that character at that point? Or ability? Does it speak to character or ability? It's more to ability than to character. His ability to you can have a man who is qualified to be an elder, and if he can't speak and can't order his thoughts, can he be an elder? No, because you need an elder needs to be apt to teach. All right, doesn't mean he's a bad guy; it just means he's not gifted to do that. Paul's saying you need to be able to, by sound doctrine, and and look what <clears throat> here's here's what we need. Think about what he's saying there. Think about what he's saying. What is it that convinces and exhorts the contradictors? 
It's not your argumentation style. It's not your erudite speaking. It's not your glib arguments. It's sound doctrine. It's not you. It's this. Okay? And a lot of times we get the idea, well, if we can just learn to argue a little better, we can just learn to speak a little better, we can just learn to convince them a little better, we can pull this thing off. Listen, it's not your style that does it. It is the Word of God that does it. The sound doctrine in the Word of God. And that is where you need to keep yourself. You don't need to worry about, well, you know, if I don't, if I don't, I'm going to lose the argument and look bad. Forget that. Use the Word of God. This, this is what we need to be concerned with, not our abilities. And why must he exhort and con convict those who contradict? Because there are many insubordinate. What's the idea of insubordinate? Disobedient. Disobedient to what? The pastor? To the Word of God. Now make sure that you make, there's a difference. There's a difference. And most pastors don't see the difference. They see their word as being equal to the Word of God. You know what? Their word is not equal to the Word of God. The only time a pastor is to be obeyed and followed is when he speaks the Word of God. That's his responsibility. The insubordination is not insubordination against the pastor. It's insubordination to the Word of God. There are many insubordinate people to the Word of God. Disobedient. They don't want to be taught. They don't want to be told. They, don't want, they want to do their own thing. And you need to use the Word to convict them. Both idle talkers and deceivers... What's the characteristic of these insubordinate people? What's their characteristics? There are a couple of them here. He lists. Well, what's he, what's he, how does he characterize them in this? What's an idle talker? They just talk. I mean, there are people who just talk, 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 and they don't say anything. They just yak. They like to hear themselves talk. And, and the idea of idle talking is it's talking that doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't do anything. Yeah, it's like sitting around a Bible saying, well, what do you think the verse means? And you go around, well, what do you think it means? What do you, that, that doesn't get anywhere. You know, that, that goes nowhere. Idle talkers. They're idle talkers and they're what? Deceivers. Liars. They don't know what they're talking about and they are deceivers. <coughs> they're deceivers. Now, may, do they necessarily know they're deceiving? Sometimes they don't, right? They're just too—they're just too bullheaded to admit the fact, the possibility that they're wrong. I had a friend. He—he—the idea of him being wrong is something he doesn't even entertain as a remote possibility. I say, you know, you could be wrong about that. It, it, you might as well go talk to a telephone pole. It does not make—I—he convinced he's not wrong about anything. He's deceived. He's deceived. And I've had friends and people in my life that, boy, you know, they like to sit down and talk about the things of the Lord. They love to th talk about the things of the Lord. And then you go out and you watch how they live and they're being sued and they're living in idleness and they're not paying their debts and they're undisciplined and ungodly. And what is that? What are they? They're an idle talker and a deceiver. They they blow smoke, but they there's no fire there. They just talk, but... There's no reality. Paul is saying the godly people have a reality behind them, underneath them. You can see a reality. There's a difference in their life. They are, their character tells you what they are. And then there's idle talkers that just talk a good thing, but there's no reality behind it. They're deceivers. They're just, they're just blowing air. And he's saying your job as an elder is to use the word of God to exhort and to convict them. It's not your, your argumentation that's going to convict them. It is the God's Word that's going to convict them. He says, especially those of the circumcision. Now, he's keying in on what group here? 
the Judaizers. And what were the Judaizers? Well, they had distorted the Word of God. They had mixed law and grace. They made themselves out to be experts in the law, but they didn't understand the true meaning of the law. Paul said they're deceivers, especially the ones who are of the circumcision, because that was a real problem in that church. The Judaizers, whose mouths must be what? They need to be shut up. They need to be silenced. How do you silence an idle talker? Yeah, put a cork in it. I, yeah, how do, how, do you, how do you silence an idle talker? What's the only way you can silence an idle talker? Well, I, what, what, what's he saying here in the, in the context? You use the truth to silence the idle talker. You don't back down. You don't compromise. See, that's what it means to hold fast the truth. You don't give up. Because it's easy to give up. It's easy to just say, look, it's more bother than it's worth. I'm tired of fighting City Hall. I'm just not going to say anything. And Paul is saying those who are the true men of God, they hold the, the truth fast. They don't let go of it. They don't compromise. They don't back down. They're going to keep at it and keep at it and keep at it. Because that's the only thing that's going to convict the insubordinate, the idle talker. And they're so bad that what do they do? They subvert whole households. I mean, it's not like they subvert one person. They, they subvert them a household at a time. You can almost think of the false prophets that go around to the houses they call the Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons or whatever it is they do. They subvert a whole household to get a whole group of people off into error. Saying teaching things they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. What do you mean? What do you think he means by for the sake of dishonest gain? Could be a lot. It could be financial profit. That's one great thing. What else could it be? Could be ego. Could be to expand their denomination or their group. What motivates you to preach? What should motivate you to preach? To serve the Lord. Not for what you get out of it, is it? Why should you minister your spiritual gift? To serve the Lord, not for what you... Get out of it. So, how can you tell the difference between a true preacher of the word and a false one? Well, ask the question. Would they still keep talking if you didn't pay them? No. A true preacher of the word, what would they do? They keep talking. What would the one who's in it for gain do? Shut up. There's no, you know, I'll go find, a, I'll go find some other quick, get-rich-quick scheme. He's saying there's some that are in it for financial gain. They're in it to make money or to make converts or to increase their, their fame or their fortune or whatever it is. They're in it for the wrong motivations. What motivates the true man of God? It's a deep, compelling desire to honor God. They're not in it for what's in it for them. So if they're not in it for what's in it for them, can you damage their ego? No, because they're not in it for what's in it for them. That's not why they're doing it. They're not in it to get their, their, their ego stroke. They're in it because God has called them to do that. Whereas others are in it because their egos are stroked. And if you don't stroke their ego, they become violent. They become angry. They become mad. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. What do you think he's doing here? In the notes, what? Yeah. What are the notes? What is in the notes? What did MacArthur say about it? 
Well, there's a guy called Epimenides who actually said this. Epimenides. And basically, he said the Cretans are lazy, gluttonous people. And Paul is using this as an epithet against these false prophets. He's saying they're like what Epimenides said about the Cretans. What are they? They're liars. What's a liar? You're characterized by not telling the truth. Now, if you're off doing your own thing and your ministry is not founded in the Bible, what are you? You're a liar. I mean, you might lie a little bit or a big bit, but you're still a liar because you're not dealing with truth. You're dealing with something that's not this. Whatever is not of this is not true. Okay? Now, you may not know you're a liar. You may think you're a pretty good guy, but you're a liar. And a liar is someone who's characterized by lying. It's not someone who lies once in a while. It's someone who's characterized by it. That's, that's what they are by nature. And it says they're an evil beast. What do you think an evil beast is? It's like a wild animal. What's a wild animal? When the lion wants to eat, what do you do? You feed him or what? Or you're going to be you're going to be the meal, right? The, the idea there is a, is a wild beast is controlled by their instinct and their desires and their wants, and if they're not met, they just as soon rip you apart as to look at you. These men are like that. Look, look at the look at some of the televangelists. When they don't get their ego stroke, what do they become? Frothing at the mouth, angry, mad. One of them was on TV and said, I'd like to get a Holy, Host, Holy Ghost shotgun and blow off the heads of anybody who disagrees with me. Well, that's really a godly way to talk about people you don't like, Mr. Benny Hinn. That was Benny. He wanted a Holy Ghost shotgun to blow off the heads of people who didn't, who called them on things. Well, Frederick Casey Price, is a, is a, he's of the same thing. He's of the same. What is he? Well, Frederick Casey Price is a liar, an evil beast, and a lazy glutton. Right? What's a lazy glutton? Doesn't want to work, but boy, he can break it in. No self control. You, can you? Can, does a glutton ever get enough? No. no. There's always something more, something else. And Paul is saying, these men, this is the character of these guys. Now, you know, next time a false prophet comes to your door, think of liar, evil beast, and lazy glutton. <laughs> next time you look at Frederick Casey Price, Benny Hinn, <clears throat> Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, think of lazy, glutton, evil beast, liar. It's their nature. And if you cross these guys in print, they will come at you with a viciousness that is chilling. Chilling. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Who do you rebuke? The false teacher. Now, will it necessarily make any, make any difference in their lives? No, they might still just go ahead and do their own thing anyways, right? But you're to rebuke them. And how are you to rebuke them? What do you think that means? Don't be wishy-washy. Don't be wishy-washy. You know, and, and some understand this. When I sit here and I say, Benny Hinn is a, is a evil beast, lazy, glutton, liar. I'm not saying that because I have some personal grudge or axe to grind against Benny Hinn. Or because, you know, he said something I didn't like. It has nothing to do with that. What does it have to do with Or what should it have to do with? Benny Hinn says this. The Bible says this. And there's a, there's a difference. They're, they're, they're not the same. It's not I have some ego to satisfy. And I don't like Benny Hinn because I don't like him personally. Or I have some accident. No. It's because he speaks against the Word of God. The Word of God is your measuring rod. It's your foundation. It is the thing which you measure everything else. 
And Paul's saying you rebuke them sharply, not because they've offended you, but because they are outside the boundaries of what the Word of God says. When you look at a Benny Hinn, someone who has given over to the love of money and everything else, what should that tell you about him right there? He's disqualified. What's so hard about that? When Frederick Casey Price, I think he's the one that got the, the he got a Rolls Royce given to him and he didn't like it and he made him take it back and get a different color. What's wrong with that? I mean, do you have to have a brain to even understand that that guy is probably not a man of God? What's wrong with people? You know, I, what's the Word of God say, folks? Rebuke them sharply. Don't pussyfoot around. Don't say they're nice people. Rebuke them sharply. How did Christ deal with the Pharisees? He was sharp with them. Why? Why was he sharp with them? He wanted to make sure it was clear. And they set themselves as the teachers of the truth. And they were liars. And he called them on it. And he rebuked them sharply. Now the average pagan... How did he deal with them? With kindness, because they weren't setting themselves up as the expert. But you look at Matthew 23. Here's Christ in the temple. And uh, going to be nailed on a cross pretty quickly. And how does he talk about the spiritual leaders, the false prophets? Well, you know, outside they look really good, but inside they're full of corruption. They're like white-walled washed sepulchers with dead man's bones and what? And that came, in those days when you went to the Passover, they have crews go out and whitewash all the tombs because if you touched a tomb, you were unclean. So the rule was when you went to the Passover, don't touch anything that had been whitewashed because that's a tomb. And he said, you're like a whitewashed tomb. It looks really gorgeous and really beautiful and, and elegant and, oh, it's so beautiful. And then you look inside and it's full of rotting flesh. On the outside, you guys look good. Inside, you're corrupt. And he said, you know what? You encompass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when you did, you make him twice as much the son of hell as you are. Now guess who was listening to him as he was going on about this? Where was he? Who's in the temple? All the Pharisees that he was talking about. Now that was not politically correct, was it? That was not the user-friendly way to do things. But he rebuked them sharply. Not because Christ didn't necessarily like these guys. It had nothing to do with that. It had to do with them distorting the truth. And Paul is saying, Titus, you need to rebuke them sharply. That they may be what? Sound. In the, what's sound again? Healthy. Healthy in the faith. What's the faith? When you see the faith in the New Testament, what is it? The Word of God. The faith. This. This is the faith. Jude says you must earnestly contend for what? The ones delivered to the saints. Faith. Faith there is not a verb, and it's not an adverb. It is a noun. The faith, the truth that we've been given to be sound in the truth. Not in your own opinions, not in your own notions, but in the truth. Not giving heed to what? Jewish, oh, there's that fable word again. What's a fable? A made-up story. Myth. It's a made-up story. Now, do we have made-up stories today in the churches? Well, yeah, they make it up. Um, I was talking to a lady who is a Mormon. And I don't know if you know about what Mormons believe, but they believe weird stuff. Um, some of the weird things they believe is Jesus and Satan are brothers. Jesus and Satan are brothers. They are the spirit offspring of Elohim, who is God, and one of his many celestial wives. He's a polygamist, by the way. God has a lot of wives, and that we're all spirit beings, children of Elohim and one of his many wives, so we're all Christ's half-brothers and sisters. And uh, if you're a good Mormon, 
when you die, you get to be married and you have a planet of your own to populate with all your spirit kids. And you need me to go on with all the weirdness? That's just the beginning of stuff. Where did they get that? They didn't get it from the Bible. And what's interesting is when I was talking to this lady, I said, I said, none of that's in the Bible. Oh, yeah, it is. Well, no, it's not. Well, yeah, it is. Well, no, it's not. Well, yeah, it is. You know how it's there? Because Joseph Smith went back and he rewrote Genesis to add it. But before Joseph Smith, there was no evidence that this ever, ever existed anywhere. In fact, you know where it came from? You might be surprised to know this. You know where it came from? You know where the whole idea of the, of the, of the civilization on North America... See, they believe that the, that there were there that the, there was a Jewish family that immigrated from in the time of Isaiah from Palestine to America, and that is where all the Indians come from. They're all really Jews over here. They believe that the the Nephites and the Lamites or whatever it is. It's weird. You know where he got that? Some guy wrote a novel, a fictional novel of life on in America, North America. And he picked up this novel and he incorporated it in the Book of Mormon. And you know where the original novel exists? The archives at Oberlin College. It's up there. The original novel is in the archives of Oberlin College. But it was a novel. Fables, folks. Fables. You just come up with this stuff. Benny Hinn says, you know, originally women bore children out of their side. Where'd you get that? Well, it doesn't matter where he got it. And then he says, you know, Adam could fly through the air like Superman. Well, where'd you get that? Well, he had dominion over the air, and if you don't have dominion over the air, you, if you don't fly, you don't have dominion. Where'd you come up with that, Benny? It's fables. You just come up with it. We need to be very careful, folks, that our theology is derived from here and not from some fanciful notion we get because we have a dream after eating pizza and beer. I often said that some of these theologies come from, it's the pizza and beer theology. You know, you have pizza with double anchovies and beer, and you have a dream at night, and you come up with this stuff. There's no reality to it. It's a fable. Stick with this. Bart. I was going to say that uh, not long ago, I, I, mean, I was looking at one of their pamphlets, and yeah. showing John the Baptist ordaining him. And I mean, they really, some of those areas, they really dress up their I mean, they really, I mean, I think these young guys that go around, they have to do this for a couple of years or something, and they yeah. really know a lot of, of, of the Bible that's a distortion. You know? I mean, it's, really it's sad. It's fables. Yeah. It's fables. It's, and this is interesting. Peter, what did he say? We have not followed cunningly devised. Remember that? What did he say? We have not followed cunningly devised fables. First Peter chapter, I think it's chapter one. We did not follow cunningly devised fables. No, second Peter one. But we preached to you what? The word of God. We didn't sit around and come up with this stuff. It's funny, a friend of mine, Dean Robinson, visited in Kirtland, where they where where, where really Mormonism was born here is in Kirtland, Ohio. And uh, they were in the, the room, supposedly the, the, the room in this place where Joseph Smith and all of them, they sat around all the time and talked and that. And uh, they were talking about some of the things that the Mormons believed and all that. And one of them was uh, no tobacco and uh, coffee. I think coffee and tea and there's a couple other things there. And, and they asked, they were talking to the, he was on a tour group. And he said, and Dean spoke up, it was really funny, he said, well, I said, I know where that came from. He said, probably Joseph Smith's wife got sick and tired of cleaning the floor up here, so she had him come up with a revelation about not chewing tobacco so they would spit it on the floor and she'd have to clean the thing up. And, you know, I sit here and laugh at it, but you know what? That's probably where it came from. It's cunningly devised fables. It's, there's no basis in reality. It's you make it up. And we have a lot of made-up theology today. We have people that take psychological principles and then they try to go through the Bible and find out some basis of reality for it in the Bible. That's a fable. That's a, that, there's no truth to that. The whole, you know, last week we talked about the choleric and the 
melancholic and the phlegmatic and the sanguine personality types and all that came from Aristotle. That didn't come from Paul and Peter and the apostles. That's somebody somebody else came up with that. But we have whole theologies in the church that are based on fables and myths. And Paul is saying here, don't give in to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Don't let somebody come up with something that turns you from the Word of God. Bart, you're going to... It just seems to me like, you know, you look at it, the true measure of one seems to be they're taking the essential and distorting it. I mean, not the non-essential, but the essential doctrine. As soon as they distort that, you become a cult. Yep. Cults. There, there's always a germ of truth in cults, but they, they add to it. They subtract from. And what's interesting here is Paul is saying anything that is not truth, i.e., anything that is not revealed in the faith, is a fable. And fables, by definition, are not real. There's no basis of reality to them. So as a preacher, as an elder, what are you to stick to? Don't go down the fable route. Stick to the Word of God route. Stick with the Word of God. I remember, and I, I, I you know, maybe I'm overdoing it, but I remember in one place where I was teaching Moody, one of the professors had to stay out for the day. He was, he was out sick or something, and the guy who came in showed a movie by, I forget who it was, and basically the idea is it wasn't the sanguine, melancholic, choleric, or phlegmatic. It was the, the beaver, the otter, the lion, and the dog, or golden retreat. It was something, and he spent, he spent the entire class talking about whether you know, they're a dog or an eagle or whatever it is. I forget what the th four animals. There's four different animals there like that. Yeah. Otter was one of them, and, and it's like you've got a whole Bible full of divine truth, and you're trying to make people feel like they're an otter or an eagle or whatever. What, where'd you get that's Aesop's fables? You know, that, that goes back to fables. What are you teaching that for? That's, that's a prostitution of your calling. As a preacher, you need to stand up in the pulpit and you need to preach this. And forget about all these fancy, dancy little notions that we have nowadays. It's the Word of God. It's, it's what the Word of God says that's important. Paul is saying, don't get sucked into that. Because when you, when you go, give heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who have done what? What have they done? They've turned from what? If it's not in here, it's not true. Do you understand that? Now, we're not talking about scientific facts, things like that. We're talking about spiritual issues. If it's not in here, it's not true. And there's no need to deal with it. There's no need to talk about it. There's no need to analyze it. If it's not in the Word of God, it's not true. So if you want to know the truth, where do you go? Here. You don't need to go anywhere else. And yet the sad fact of the day, day is, is Christians are everywhere but here. You've got Christians that know more about what's going on in the, in the fictional writings of Tim LaHaye in the Left Behind series than they have any idea what the Bible says. They know the latest psychological fad that comes along, but they don't know the Word of God. This is where you need to be. Because the man of God is one who takes this and he uses it to refute and correct and exhort the error. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. What does he mean by that? If they are defiled, everything they touch is defiled, everything they think about is defiled, and everything they say is defiled. So why do you want to listen to them? To the pure, all things are pure. What does it mean to be pure? Christ-like, holy. A holy man of God is going to take the Word of God and speak it in a pure manner. 
Those who are defiled, everything they touch is defiled. They can't, they'll take the Word of God and they'll twist it. And I've heard the Bible twisted in knots from people who, who are defiled. They want it to make, say what they want it to say. And you know what? I'll tell you what. You can come up with any theology you want, and you can make this book say it. You can find a verse somewhere that will support what you want. Now, you're not rightly dividing the word of truth. You're not cutting it straight. But boy, you can come up with some really weird things. He's saying, those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But what is it? Their mind and conscience are defiled. What does it mean to have your mind and conscience defiled? If your mind is defiled, what does that mean? <clears throat> you can't think right. Jerry Springer's problem is he can't think right. He's to be pitied. He can't think right. Now that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about people who claim to be godly, and claim to be preachers of the truth or are defiled, but the principle holds. The unbeliever is defiled. Their thinking is distorted, so they can't think right. Why is it that you're able to think right? The Holy Spirit has transformed your life and has given you the ability to think. And it's really not your ability to think. It's not your ability. And it says their conscience is defiled. What does it mean to have a defiled conscience? What's your conscience... What's your conscience supposed to tell you? What is right and what is wrong? So if you got a defiled conscience, what happens to the labels of right and wrong? They're all messed up, right? They're all messed up. What you think is right is wrong. What you think is wrong is right. The labels are switched. And we have a world full of people today whose consciences are defiled the labels are all wrong. The labels are all wrong. And in the church, we have people whose labels are all wrong. The people on TBN think that having money and financial wealth is a sign of what? Success, Success and God's blessing. Their conscience is defiled. They sincerely believe that, but they're sincerely wrong because the Measuring stick is wrong. The units are wrong. Paulus, and where do you get where do you get a pure conscience? Where does that come from? Go back to First Timothy, right? Where does the pure conscience come from? But the end of the what is it? What's it say there? This this is a you might want to put a little mark right here. The purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and an unfeigned faith. 1 Timothy 1, 5 should go as a verse right there. Conscience is filed. How do you get a good conscience? You're in the Word of God. How do you, how do you, how do you calibrate your sense of right and wrong? You don't go to the fables and you don't ask somebody else, right? Because they might be wrong too. Where do you go? Go to the Word of God. The Word of God is the standard. And everything else is measured by this standard. This is the standard. They profess to know God. Boy, I'll tell you what, you got a lot of people out there that know God, right? In fact, if you listen to Kenneth Hagin, he talks to God every night. God comes down and talks to him. And even ask Kenneth Hagin what he should do about things. I'm not making that up. He said that. There's a lot of people say, I know God, I know God, I know God. How do you know if they know God or not? Look at their life. Look at their conduct. See how they live. If their life is given over to ungodly things. They don't know God. I don't care if... the or who they know may not be the God of the Bible, right? It may be a God of their own making. That's idolatry, isn't it? Making a God in your own image? Well, I don't like the God of the Bible, so I'll make one up that's 
little bit more friendly to what I want him to be. Profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. They say they know God, but you look at their life, it doesn't match up. Look at the Pharisees. What do the Pharisees say? We know God, we know God, we know God. What did their works show? When God showed up, what did they do? They killed him. They know God, they didn't know God. And why didn't they know God? Because the standard of which they measured was wrong. They were in their own fables, their own endless genealogies, their own traditions, and they had forgotten what the Bible really said. And Christ showed up and says, You've heard it said by them of old time, but I'm telling you, this is what the Word of God meant. You've missed it. And you go worry about the traditions of the elder, and you forget about mercy and justice. You guys have blown it. You've got the wrong standard of measure. It works, they deny him. And what does that mean? Being abominable. What's abominable? Abominable, like the abominable snowman. What's abominable mean? Detestable. Think of abominable as looking at a rotten piece of meat that grossly... What do you do with it? You bury it. You throw it out. In fact, you don't even leave it in the garbage can so it'll reek up the whole house. you got to get rid of it. These people are abominable. It's not that, oh, you know, they're really good down inside. You know, they're okay, they made a couple of mistakes here. What does God see in mass? Abominable, detestable. They're disobedient. Why, won't, why are they disobedient? What way are they disobedient? Because what has God told them? God's told them this, and they're doing this. God's told them what to do, and they're not doing that. They're doing their own, they've come up with their own little thing they want to do. They're disobedient. They're disobedient to the Word of God. And he says also they're, they're disqualified. What does it mean to be disqualified? Unfit. You don't even get to the starting point. If you're disqualified, you don't even get on the starting line for every good work. They're, they're, they're done before they start. Now, how do you, what do you, what impression do you get of, of false teachers from Paul here? What do you th how do you think he thought about false teachers? He wasn't very nice to them, was he? He wasn't very nice. They just, that's the point. That's what he's saying. They destroy the truth. They destroy, what's he saying? Subvert whole households. They destroy entire families. Are destroyed through these people. And, it's, and again, Paul is not saying, I don't like them because, because I don't like them personally. He's saying they are against the truth. Paul's Paul's great loyalty is to the truth. And these people are not loyal to the truth. What are they? They're like the Cretans. Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, indulgent. Any comments or questions on this so far? He it is that loves me. Yeah, you want you want God to love you while well, you do what He says. You do what He says. Verse one of chapter two. But as for you, what does He think He's saying there? But as for you, this is the way the bad guys are. But as for you, you're not like them. You're not to be like them, but as for you, what are you to speak? This is what the bad guys speak. What should you be speaking? Speak the things which are proper for... There's the, what's that? 
every time you turn around, anybody do a paper in here on sound? Didn't do a every time you turn around, what do you get? Sound doctrine, sound doctrine, sound doctrine, sound doctrine, healthy doctrine. But as for you, instead of you acting like the evil beasts and gluttons and liars, you speak sound doctrine, healthy doctrine. Where do you get that? From the Word of God. Sound doctrine comes from this, not from your own fables and endless genealogies and vain janglings, but from the Word of God. Timothy asks for you. You preach. You speak the things which are sound doctrine. And how do you know if what you're preaching is ultimately sound doctrine? What do you see happening? People who hear it, godliness. You see godly character. You see unfeigned faith. You see a good conscience. That's how you know if something's sound or not. It's just like when you look at somebody who, who eats food. If you got somebody who's a physical wreck because they eat the wrong things and somebody who looks like Arnold because he eats the right things, what do you... What are you eating? Well, you assume Arnold's not eating Hostess Twinkies and Conut, you know, donuts and Coke and all that. You assume he's eating the right stuff, right? Steroids. Steroids. The whole point here is, you know, the character is the is the indicator of what's going in. If sound doctrine is going in, godly character is going to be produced. And then he's going to, and what he's going to do here now, is say, well, here's some of the things that you're to talk about. Here's some of the sound doctrine that you're supposed to preach. And the way he does this is he splits it up into groups of people. He's got older men, older women, younger men, younger women. He has children tossed in there. He has slaves, bond servants. And the key to all of this is that when you preach sound doctrine and people's lives are changed and they do the right things, what you're going to do is you're going to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Verse 10 that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. What does it mean to be a, to adorn something? To dress it up so that it is a it's attractive, it's beautiful, it draws the attention. If you walk through a forest and you got a whole bunch of trees and you got one, you know, with the looks like a Christmas tree, which tree are you drawn to? The one that's adorned. The rest of them, you don't. You see the one that's adorned. And what Paul is saying is that when you, as a body of Christ, when you are functioning healthily, by having had sound doctrine preached, and everybody is doing healthy things and living with a good conscience and an unfeigned faith and good works, that's going to adorn the doctrine of God. It's going to make it acceptable. It's going to make it attractive. When people look at your life and they look at your ministry and they look at your church, they're going to be drawn to that. Most people, they are repulsed by what they see in the church. If you want to adorn the doctrine of God, live a holy life. Who's he start out with? Well, the older guys. That the older men be sober. Who's the older men, do you think? The senior people, most Bible scholars would say, these are the people that are probably 60 and older. Somewhere around in that age. And in those days, if you were 60 and older, what had you already done? You've raised your family. You've pretty much raised your family. Alright? So that's the older man. And by the way, the older woman is one who has raised her family. Her children are out of the home. Okay? He said, I want the older men to do something, to be sober. What does it mean to be sober? Well, not a drunk, but again, what is sober? Clear thinking, right? 
which is not a drunk idea of clear thinking. Um, you don't want a bunch of old guys sitting around chewing the fat, just blowing hot air, right? You want men who are sober, who think. And why should they be sober? Why should they be serious? They're the spiritual heads, and they've been over the road, and they've seen it. They've experienced life. They've seen what's gone on. They're to be sober. They're to be reverent. What's the idea of being reverent? Respectful, especially towards who? To others and to God. They're not to be disrespectful. They're not to, not to be flippant. They're to be temperate. What's the idea of temperate there? Level-headed, self-control. Goes back to, now a lot of these character traits, where have we seen these before? With the elders, right? Now, what he's saying here, not every older man is going to become an elder, right? But older men are to be serious. They're to be reverent. They're to be self-controlled. They're to be what? Sound in faith. What does it mean to be sound in faith? Know what they believe. To know the word. To be Yeah. And how they've gotten sound in faith, because over a long time they've eaten sound doctrine. They've been exposed to sound doctrine, which has produced a soundness in their faith. Have a, they have a healthy faith. And they're also to be sound in what? What does it mean to be love? Yeah. And you know what? It's been it's been my observation that the older people get in the church, the more pickled they become, the more cynical. You ever be around elder people and they're just cynical? Well, young people are like that. They're all no good, you know. Just cynic, 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 cynic. You know. I don't know about this younger generation. They're all bad. You know. That's cynical. That's cynicism. Which of the older people, the older men, should be teaching the younger men and be models and be examples and, and if anything, to show the younger men that you don't have to become pickled with age. You don't have to become cranky and grouchy. That's a real testimony to Christ, right? The older you get, the crankier you become. That's a real testimony. And yet there are older people in churches, they that church is full of older, cranky people. And if it's not their way, they whine and moan and groan with the best of them. We don't have that problem in this church. Just so, you know. I'm joking. Impatience. What does it mean, impatience? Patience is, patience is patient towards who? Towards things or People. People. There are some older people that are very impatient, aren't they? They want it now. They want it their way. They're very crotchety. They have a very low tolerance. They don't want little kids running around because it bothers them. Paul is saying, I want the older men to be serious. I want them to be loving, to be patient. And do you think Paul's given an exhaustive list of things here? You think this is an exhaustive list? It's a representative list. Why should these older men be more loving and more reverent? What's implied in that? Just their age or what? Particularly spiritual maturity. They have been exposed to the word longer than the young men. And what should sound doctrine produce? Crotchety old geezers? No. No. It shouldn't produce them. It should produce godly people. 
The older women likewise. What does it mean likewise? Just like you're teaching the old guys, in the same manner that you're commanding them, I want you to command the older women that they be reverent in behavior. What does it mean to be reverent in behavior? Respectful. Reverent. Do you know older women who despise their husbands? An older woman is to be reverent to her husband, particularly to her husband. Respectful. Not slanders. Why do you throw that in? That's a no-brainer, right? I'm just saying generally, generally, women are more gossipy. And why is that? Why, why, why are women more gossipy than men are? How do men communicate? Grunt and bodily noises, right? That's how men... I'm, look, I'm telling you, you get a bunch of guys together and they grunt and, you know, that's how men... I'm, I'm, I'm being funny here a little bit, but, you know, you get two guys, how'd you do? They go, great. Everything great? Right. What happened on the way home? Nothing. I mean, yeah, that's it. That's, that's men. All right. Now, you ask a woman that, you're in for a half hour of everything that went happen, you know. Now, you ask a guy, you know, well, uh, what'd you wear to church last Sunday? Uh, clothes. You know, you ask a woman, well, I wore this dress, you know, and the last time I wore that dress was three years, four months ago, and I didn't want to wear it for three years because somebody would have remembered that I wore it. Women are wired differently. The point is, women, women are much more vocal, much more relational. It's just the way they are. It's just, that's, just, that's, just, that's just with that. And the more you talk, the more danger there is to gossip and slander. He's not just picking on women, okay? And again, like I said, these are not, these are representative lists. They're not exhaustive. Yeah. That, I'm serious. Look, look, it's, it's true. And I feel, I you know, on a personal note, I feel really bad for my wife because we'll often be driving along and she'll say, you know, you never talk to me. And I, I you know, I say, if I'm to talk to you in the car, I got to talk really loud and I got to look at you while I run into the telephone pole, you know. <laughs> I feel so bad because I'd like to talk to her, but I can't because she, she's like, huh? 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 <laughs> I, I feel sorry. She's very hard of hearing, you know, and love her, you know, but, but she, what does she, what does she look for in me? She wants somebody to talk to her. You know what I want when I come home? I want to be left alone. You know? Yeah, give me a Star Trek episode and you know. But but it's just the way we're 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 wired. Yeah. We're, we're, we're it's just that men and women are wired differently. And generally, and, and here's the here's here's the thing. Most women in those days, how did they live? Well, they stayed home, but where was home? Women were around other women all day long. All right? That's all they did. They were, and it's not that they were not doing anything, but, you know, they had to go draw water. They had to go wash the clothes. They had to cook the meals. You know, they watched each other's kids. You know, they were with other people. Where were the men? They were out in the field usually working. It, it's just the dynamic. Look, it's just social dynamic is all it is. But he's saying women are not to be slanders. Now, that doesn't mean that the older men can slander and the older women aren't allowed to. That's not what he's getting at. He's picking some representative um, problems that each group faces. Not exhaustive list, but a representative list, at least enough to get you understanding what he's talking about. He said the older women are not to be slanders, not to be given too much wine. 
Well, does that mean that the older guys can drink, but the older women can't? No, that's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. They're not to be given over to wine, and they're to be teachers of good things. And it's 9 o'clock, and we'll pick up here next week what the good things are. All right. Any comments or questions? One more week. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 and Paul deals with that in many other passages of Scripture where he puts gossip and slander right up there alongside murder and adultery and fornication. All right? Absolutely. But what Paul is doing in this passage is he's just picking a few representative weaknesses of each of the genders. And we're going to see that when we get to the young men and the younger women. Because one of the things he tells the younger men is they are to treat the younger women like what? So what does that imply about their sexuality? Purity. And what's the, what's the danger of a young man? Impurity. And again, it's not an exhaustive list. He's just hitting representative weaknesses that each group has. That's all he's doing. All right. Let's close in prayer. Father, thanks for this night, and I pray that you'd help us to remember these things. Thanks so much for time in your word and fellowship with one another. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.